you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to read uh, the, the scripture that was, reading, that was read earlier, that Aaron read from John 14. We're going to start out by reading that. Uh, John 14 verses 15 through 17. These are going to be pretty familiar words, at least some of them. Read along with me, John 14, verses 15 through 17. If you love me, this is page 901 in the chair Bibles, if you are using a chair Bible. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is one of those amazing passages in the Bible where all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned separately. We have Jesus. He's the one speaking these words. Uh, He's speaking these words of comfort to his disciples. He's comforting them because he's talking about the fact that he's about to be taken away from them. He's on the way to Jerusalem. He's on the way to be crucified. He explains to them that he is going to his father, but when he does, he will send them his Holy Spirit to be with them after his ascension, after his resurrection. He will ascend to the father and he will send them the Holy Spirit. His disciples, he tells them, are familiar with his spirit because at that time the spirit had already dwelt with them, the text tells us. But when Jesus is gone, the Spirit will then dwell in them. Now, of course, the disciples were probably a little confused about this when Jesus said it. But we know that the promise came to be fulfilled in the book of Acts and the day of Pentecost when the the disciples of Jesus were in the upper room and the tongues of fire descended upon them and they were filled with the Spirit. And from that point on, they risked their lives boldly for for the cause of Christ and for his gospel message. But today I want us to look back a little bit, to step back and ask a specific question about the Trinity What does the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, have to do with your family? Does that seem like a strange question? Is it something you've ever thought about? Does it seem like the answer would be too abstract to be helpful? Does it seem like the Trinity itself is kind of too abstract to be helpful? Perhaps even articulating what the Trinity is would be a challenge for some of us. It is for me. But when we think about our families, whether we are married or not, or whether we have children or not, and we consider how to live with one another in love and unity, how often does the Trinity come into those thoughts? And Today, I would like us to consider what the Trinity has to say to us about our family relationships I hope that you'll see that this applies to your life no matter what stage of life you're in. First, I need to answer the why question. Why am I preaching on this, okay? Why is this important for Redeemer Church at this time to consider this question? There's at least two reasons. First, this is important because our families are growing, okay? Now, if you have been around here, if you were here two years ago, 
at Redeemer Church, you know that we have grown immensely. God has been gracious to us by blessing us with many new people, some of whom already have established families. Um, um, Some of them don't have established families. Some singles who have met here at Redeemer Church, been married, and are now faithfully fulfilling the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply, right? Um, We are growing like crazy. We currently have, right now, 24 children ages 11 and under in our church. And that's just, just children of members, right? We also have five children of members on the way. That's 29 children that we will have, Lord willing, very shortly of members. That's almost half of our membership. That's crazy, I mean, that, that, that's amazing to me. I didn't realize it was that high until I sat down to prepare this message. I was counting them all, and I, I couldn't believe it. 24. We'll, we'll be over 30 by the end of the year. That's what it's all about. <laughs> that sounded like I was, like, really bragging about how many children. I, I, it is, it's, it's great. Um, so the first reason why this is important is because we're growing. Uh, our families are growing. God's adding to our number. Um, people are having babies like crazy. That, that's great. Uh, the second reason this is important, and this is a little more church specific, we are seeking to implement a more thorough family ministry model here at Redeemer Church. Okay, so I don't want to lose, I might start losing people when I talk about ministry models here, but hopefully this will this will seem important uh, as I go on. Now, a number of us have been reading up on family ministry models and brainstorming ways that we can better train and equip parents in gospel ministry to their children, okay? We believe that parents are primarily responsible for the discipling and direction of their children's lives. We believe that the church's responsibility is to come alongside the parents and make sure they have what they need to fulfill that function, okay? So the church is secondary in the role of raising children. Parents are primary, Now, there are a number of different ways that churches have chosen to minister to children and to equip parents throughout the history of the church. Many of us, if you're like me, uh, we have grown up in more programmatic churches. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, they're more well-established and they have more well-organized children's ministries in terms of having programs and events and classes and things like that, regularly scheduled things, right? So many of us are familiar with things like Awana, Royal Royal Ambassadors. Maybe many of us aren't familiar with Royal Ambassadors anymore. I haven't really heard about RAs in years. Um, Kids clubs, youth group, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, right? These are more programmatic things that churches have used to help minister to children um, and give some sort of direction and structure for the kids and uh, their parents. Um, and this can look any number of ways, right? It's this kind of program model that children are usually divided up by age into different classes. The curriculum is supposed to be age-specific and age-appropriate, right? But in this model, children are usually also divided up from their parents a lot of the time. So you have a lot of families coming to church. They come into the church building and everyone goes their separate ways. 
The three-year-old goes here. The five-year-old goes here. The 10-year-old goes here. The mom goes here to a women's class. The dad goes here to a men's class, right? And then maybe they'll meet up for worship. Um, But there's just a lot of division going on, right? And so um, for that reason and some other reason, we, we don't think that this model has served the church well over the years. And, and so we could get into a lot of specifics about that. But that model can be called the family-based model. That's what we'll call it, the family-based model that's more programmatic, more structured, age-separated. Age uh, okay, so we'll call that the family-based model. We believe the best way for children to grow up in the local church is to be with their parents as much as possible alongside their parents as they sing together and sit together under the proclamation of the word and enjoy the blessings of the gathered church together. At the same time, we do still see some value in maintaining some age-appropriate divisions because you're all thinking right now, well, wait a minute, we just sent our kids upstairs, right? We got zero to three-year-olds up there and tots and four to six-year-olds and redeemer kids, right? So we are maintaining some of those structured divisions and age-graded things, right? And we, we, we want to do that. But what we're thinking about, what we're brainstorming is how can we minister to older kids, ages 7, 8, 9, 10, youth, right? Teenagers. I mean, 24 kids, 11 and under, are going to be 24, ki- 24 teenagers very shortly, right? And in 10 years, many of those will be teenagers. And so um, what are we going to do, you know? What what do we have in place for that? And so we're thinking about all these questions right now, okay? We're a church plant. We don't have all these things figured out. But So what we're trying to do is implement what's called a family equipping model of ministry. Now, what is the family equipping model? How is it different from what we, we've talked about already? Well, Timothy Paul Jones, who's one of the kind of leaders in coming up with this model, he says this. Whereas family-based churches develop intergenerational activities within existing segmented programmatic structures. Man, it's really tough. Uh, hard to <laughs> keep even my mind on what that, that means. Um, they add family activities to current calendars. Okay, Family-equipping churches redevelop the congregation structure to cultivate a renewed culture wherein parents are acknowledged, trained, and held accountable as the primary faith trainers in their children's lives. Every level of the congregation's life is consciously recaptured to co-champion or to hold up the church's ministry and the parents' responsibility. That's what they mean by co-champion. We're going to hold up the church's ministry and the parents' responsibility. That's the goal with family equipping ministry is to say both of these things are needed. Parents are primary. The church is secondary, but both are needed. So family equipping models of ministry, you can think of it like a river. The child's life is the river. It's, it's the water running, running along the river in each, through each stage of life. On the, both sides, you have the river bank. One side is the parents. One side is the church. They're working together and giving direction to that child's life, right? And so uh, one side, you have parents, the home, is the primary way that children, we think, need to be discipled. But the church comes alongside that, equips, trains, um, does all kinds of things to help parents in that task. Does that make sense? 
I hope that that's making sense. That's the family equipping model. That's what we're aiming at here. Um, the church is heavily involved in equipping and training of parents as they disciple their children primarily in the home. The church comes alongside parents in a number of ways. Um, but, okay, so the question then becomes, well, where are we getting this idea, right? Is there a foundation for this idea? Um, is there any basis for understanding the family as the primary um, means, the primary context for discipling children. And so that's where the Trinity is going to come in, okay? So my, I'm going to argue, hopefully today, we'll see, that um, the very nature of God is the foundation for all Christian ministry. The very nature of God is the foundation for all Christian ministry. That's that's my proposition. That's where I'm going, okay? So, is this biblical? And so, we're starting with the, the very nature of God. What does it mean to be God? Who is this God that we talk about, this God of the Bible? Now, many of us have a hard time seeing what the Trinity has to do with our families, because let's be honest, we probably have not spent much time really thinking about the Trinity, considering the biblical support for it. But we have to remember that everything true that we can learn about God is valuable and practical for our daily lives. There is no knowledge of God that is merely theoretical. All knowledge of God is useful and should lead to right thinking and right action, okay? And if... In his word, God has revealed himself in three persons, then we are responsible for understanding him in that way and seeking to understand what that means for our lives. We must understand God in his own terms. Now, we have to understand that the Trinity is not just a doctrine that we affirm. It's not just an idea, right? Um, but when we talk about the Trinity, we are talking about the very nature of God himself. When, when, I, talk, when I talk about my wife, my wife is, I don't just talk about her as if this is like some, some made up person. Oh, my wife, she's, she's, you know, she's loving, she's caring, she's gentle, right? I mean, that, that's not going to mean much if I don't get, if I don't remember that I'm talking about a specific person. There's this personal connection that I have with her, right? And so when we talk about God, we're not just simply theorizing about who this God is, but we're, we're really getting at the nature and the heart of this personal being that we can know and who has revealed himself to us. So God, in his very nature, is Trinitarian. We have to start there. Now, what does that mean? Well, sometimes it's helpful to start with a more formal statement. So, let's look at our own statement of faith. The Redeemer, our Redeemer Church statement of faith says this. The scriptures reveal that the one God eternally exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person has distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. So, there's one God who exists eternally in three persons, 
There's one God, three persons. Let's start with one God. Is this biblical? From the very early on, Christians have understood the Bible to teach that there is only one God. He is one. Deuteronomy 4.35 states that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45.5-6 through 6 says, I am the Lord. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. New Testament, James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. We could go to a number of passages that affirm that there is one God and only one God. There are not three gods. There is one. There is one God who created the heavens and the earth. He flooded the earth in the days of Noah. He called Abraham and promised to make him into a great nation. He preserved Abraham's offspring through the line of Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, all the way down to David and Solomon, all the way down to Jesus Christ. This is the God of the Bible. He is one God. So we affirm without hesitation there is only one God. But where the Trinity starts to get a little confusing or, or, or hard for us um, is when we look at the next part of the, the statement of faith. This one God eternally exists and is fully revealed in three divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, where is this affirmed in Scripture? Where is the Trinity mentioned in Scripture? Well, it's not. But when we read Scripture... From cover to cover, we see, it's, we see this clearly, that as the Father is talked about, he is clearly understood to be God, to be divine. As the Son comes and he is born of a virgin, he lives his sinless life ministering on earth and gives his life as a ransom uh, for sin, he is clearly understood to be God incarnate. And as this Holy Spirit is referred to many times, he is clearly uh, meant to be understood to be divine as well. So first, the Father. The Father is divine. We're just going to look at one passage for each person. We could look at many, okay? I really limit myself here. Uh, <laughs> talking about the Trinity, we could talk for hours about that. So the Father is divine. Matthew 6, 9 through 10. Jesus, this is Jesus teaching us how to pray. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Very familiar. So here Jesus tells us to pray to who? The Father. So the Father is clearly not the Son. He is distinct from Jesus, but clearly Jesus is affirming that the Father is divine. He is in heaven. It is his name that is to be honored. It is his kingdom that we are seeking. It is his heavenly will that we want to be established on earth. According to this passage, the Father is divine. Second, the Son is divine. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So here we see that the word who is identified as Christ was in the beginning. He was pre-existent and co-eternal with the Father. He was with God. And not only was he with God, he actually was God. The world was made through him. This kind of power over creation is not something shared by the Father with a lesser being. The ability to create all things is a defining characteristic of what it means to be God. If Jesus was with God in the beginning, and if the world was created through him, then certainly we should understand him to be divine. And in fact, as you read through the book of John, this becomes abundantly clear. John, more than any of the gospels, affirms the deity of Christ. Jesus even identifies himself as I am, the very name of God in the Old Testament. So Jesus, we affirm, is divine. Third, the Holy Spirit is divine. Jesus tells us in John 16 that I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's John chapter 16. So the Holy Spirit is the means of Jesus actually dwelling with believers after his ascension. The Spirit communicates the very words of Jesus. He guides us in truth and declares to us the things that are to come. Followers of Christ can be comforted even though Jesus is no longer with us in bodily form because we have his Spirit. This would only be a comfort if the Spirit shared the same nature as the Father and the Son. We could go to other passages as well that affirm without question the Bible understands the Holy Spirit, the New Testament believers understood the Holy Spirit to be the very presence of Christ. So, these passages and many others tell us that each person of the Trinity is to be understood to share the divine nature This understanding of the Trinity is consistent with what Christians have believed throughout church history, and it affirms our statement of faith. What we are affirming about the Trinitarian nature of God is not some new idea that modern Christians have developed. It is the established, orthodox, and accepted teaching of Christians throughout the history of Christianity. Bruce Ware, he's a systematic theologian uh, from uh, Southern Seminary. He, um, he, He talks about the Trinity in this way. I think the quote is up there. Yeah. Each member of the Godhead is equally God. Each is eternally God. Each is fully God. Not three gods, but three persons of the one eternal Godhead. Each person is equal in essence to the other divine persons. Each possesses fully and simultaneously the identically same eternal divine nature. Yet each is also an eternal and distinct 
personal expression of that one and undivided divine nature. So there are not three gods. There is only one God. The God Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But this one God exists in three persons. Now, what we have seen so far in our very, very brief overview of the Trinity is that each person of the Trinity shares the same nature. They should be understood as divine and together they are the one true God. But the question then becomes, okay, we get that, we affirm that, we believe that. So what's different about them? What makes them distinct then? If they're separate persons and they share the same nature, then what is it that makes them distinct? What distinguishes the Father from the Son or the Spirit from the Son? If what distinguishes each person of the Trinity is not their nature or their godness, right? Think of godness. If that's not what separates them, then it must be their particular roles and relationships. Roles and relationships. Now, what does this look like? Again, I'm going to defer to Bruce Ware. He's going to kind of give us a launching pad here um, to think about this. To distinguish the roles and relationships that exist in among the triune persons, we might say this. The Father is supreme in authority among the persons of the Godhead. He is responsible for devising the grand purposes and plans that take place through all of creation and redemption. The Son is under the Father's authority and seeks always to do the Father's will. Although the Son is fully God, He nonetheless takes His lead from the Father and seeks to glorify the Father in all that He does. The Spirit is under both the Father and the Son. And the Son sought to glorify the Father in all He did. As the Son sought to glorify the Father in all He did, the Spirit seeks to glorify the Son to the ultimate praise of the Father. That's a glorious statement. Um, When we see this in Scripture, it ought to cause our hearts to just elevate in worship. Where do we see this in Scripture? Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to just look at one place where we see this. Think about God's work of redemption. Okay? This is what Ephesians 1 is, is, is telling us about. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are ours. How? How are they ours, Paul? Look in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father. Okay, there's the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were for the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." Okay, so how does this work? How does that statement that I just read from Bruce Ware work? Well, the Father, according to Ephesians 1, chose us before the foundation of the world. The Father did that. The Father predestined us for adoption. He did this through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Then Jesus Christ comes to earth, dies for the sins of his people, and Ephesians Ephesians 1 tells us that we have redemption through his blood that was shed. So the Father elects, predestines, he sends the Son, the Son comes, accomplishes the sacrifice for sins, and then later in Ephesians 1 we are told that those who hope in Christ are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Father plans, the Son executes the plan, and the Spirit applies the work of Christ. That is a glorious thing. So here we have the Trinity, all three persons, all of them divine nature, all of them fulfilling different roles and different relationships, even among God. In the person, in the the being of God himself, we have relationships being um, established, relationships, interaction between the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the Son. All equal, co-eternal, different in role and relationship. There is one work of redemption. Each person of the Trinity plays a particular role and function. Now, this is just one example of how these roles distinguish each person from the others. Within the very nature and purposes of God, we have unity and diversity, oneness and harmony. This is a beautiful thing. All of creation, in fact, is a testimony to this nature of God. Just consider a few of the ways we see God's very nature put on display in creation. So we don't just see this when we meditate on God, which is glorious enough. We see this everywhere. Just consider uh, a, a few of these ways. The human body with all of its different parts and functions and yet working together for one common purpose. Take a closer look at the human cell, and we see that even at the cellular level, we have many different parts working in perfect harmony to maintain all of the pieces of the human body together. On a much bigger scale, we could look at entire ecosystems that are built upon certain plants existing in certain areas to provide food for certain animals, which become food for other animals. So the survival of the entire species, even the human species, is dependent upon countless levels of diversity. We see this 
everywhere we look. Unity, diversity. Unity, diversity. Oneness, harmony. Think about music. What makes music beautiful? Harmony. You're singing the same, but it's not the same, right? It's distinct. And isn't this unity and diversity the exact description that Paul gives us of the church when he writes in 1 Corinthians 12, the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Many parts, one body. So this unity and diversity is all around us. It is built into the very fabric of our creation. It is what should cause us to stand in awe of God's unsearchable wisdom and power to create such a masterpiece out of nothing. But this this nature of God that is built into... uh Uh-oh, battery's low. (laughs) Um, You know, just getting like to a really good transition too. Perfect. Um, So we talked about all the different ways that we see this unity and diversity played out, right? In creation. But this is important. This is not just for us to behold, right? We are not just supposed to look at this and be like, oh, yes, this is awesome. This is great. This is actually meant for us to model. We should seek to model this unity and diversity. So that's where the question comes in. This is where we begin to get a little closer to family ministry, all right? Okay, cool. What does the Trinity, what, what does what we've seen so far have to do with the family equipping ministry? It's not like you're going to be meditating on the Trinity this afternoon and be like, uh, you know, one, three persons, they're all divine. Bam, family equipping model of ministry just comes into your mind. Like, yes, it's revealed, right? That's not the point. The, the, the point is like, what are some, some principles? If we're, if we're supposed to model this unity and diversity that we see even within God himself, how can we put that into practice? How can we model that as a church? And the question, how can we model this I don't think it can start with the church. I don't think we can look at the Trinity and say, okay, unity and diversity, how can we put this into practice? If we're talking about family relationships, it has to start in the home. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is this unity and diversity being displayed, being practiced, being modeled in your home? Because remember, the family equipping model of ministry is the church coming around families, coming around mothers and fathers and children and training them and equipping them. So the question is, 
What are we going to be coming around? Is this being modeled in your home? Does your home model the Trinitarian nature of God? The husband and father has, under God, the highest place of authority in the household. The wife submits to him, and the children submit to both the husband and the wife. The wife submits to the leadership and authority of her husband, but is over the children and partners with the husband to ensure that the children learn godliness and obedience to Christ. The children are under the authority of both parents. They are to learn from the father and mother what is most important in life and seek to honor their parents as they grow up in Christ. So what we're doing is we're looking at the Trinity and we're saying, okay, we have this, these differing relationships and roles even within God himself. How do we model them as a family? Well, the family structure is set up perfectly to model the Trinitarian relationship of the persons of the Trinity. We have the Father who plans, who purposes, We have the son who submits to the will of the father. He comes and he executes the father's plan. We have the spirit who submits to the son. He applies the work of the the son to the people. The family is supposed to be built the same way. You have unity in the family. Everyone in the family shares the same nature. My kids are not less human than me because I'm their father. I am not somehow more human or more important uh, because I am the father. We all share the same nature, but there is a distinction between role and relationship in the home, just as there is in the Trinity. Does that make sense? So if we don't get this right, if we don't get the home right, we're not going to get family equipping ministry right. Because family equipping ministry is just an affirmation, a coming alongside of what should already be happening in your home. Does that make sense? So the husband, under God, has the highest place of authority. The wife submits to him, and the children submit to both the husband and the wife. Now, how does this look? What's the bottom line, right? Well, what am I getting at? We've... (laughs) We just traveled through the Trinity, talking about family ministry models, and we're trying to put all this together, right? What does this look like? Well, like I said, you have to ask the question, what is happening in your home? What is happening in your home? Fathers, let's start with fathers. From what we have seen, you have the biggest responsibility of all. Now, God has placed you as the head of, as the leader of your home? Here are some questions all fathers need to be asking ourselves. Am I leading my family at all? Am I leading my family at all? Do you recognize that God has designed and equipped you specifically to lead your family towards Christ? Are you taking an active role And fulfilling that great responsibility? Are you teaching your children the Bible? 
Are you praying with your wife and your kids? Are you modeling the love and joy of Christ, submitting to your heavenly Father just as you expect your family to submit to you? Are you modeling that submission? Men have a tendency toward one or two errors in this kind of leadership. Either they will rule with an iron fist and can abuse their authority by becoming a a, a tyrannical and demeaning leader, or they can neglect their God-given responsibility and passively abdicate, uh, abdicate the leadership of their family to others. What is your tendency? And knowing many of you men here, and knowing myself, most of us, I think, have a tendency toward passivity. That's just what I've seen. That's where I fall. My tendency is just check out, right? Come home. I see what's going on. I know that God's called me to lead my family. I know that God's called me to, to pray and to teach my children the Bible and got to do those catechism questions and, and all that stuff. And it just seems overwhelming sometimes. And so my tendency is not to get angry. My tendency is to just, well, just become passive. Don't take any action. What is your tendency? Are you more prone towards heavy-handed, mean-spirited, and harsh leadership towards your family? Are you more likely to disengage with your family and become absent, either physically, emotionally, or spiritually? My prayer is that the men of Redeemer Church would repent of the ways we are failing to lead our families and joyfully take up the charge that God is calling us to. We can't talk about family equipping ministry if men are not leading their homes. We'll get nowhere with family equipping ministry. Well, we'll get somewhere. We won't get very far with family equipping ministry if men aren't taking charge of their homes. That is something that God has given to you to steward. He's given you that wife. He's given you those kids. Take up that charge. Mothers. What about mothers? Every New New Testament passage that offers direct instruction to wives has one thing in common. They all command wives to submit to their husbands. This is not a popular thing to talk about in our modern context. Because the minute you, you mention submission, people automatically assume that what you mean is nature, right? So that what you are saying when you say women need to submit to their husbands is that you are saying she is less human, That is a demeaning thing. To submit is to be less human. That's not what we're saying. We've already affirmed, just as the Trinity, each person of the Trinity shares the same divine nature, so men and women both share the same nature. There's no hierarchy of nature, right, or kind. The the distinction, the submission comes in terms of roles and relationships, right? Right? This is why the New Testament is clear that women are to submit to their husbands. Are you submitting to the leadership of your husband as Christ submitted to the leadership of his father? Are you submitting joyfully and without complaining 
Or is your submission a begrudging submission? Do you long to help, serve, and assist your husband in the discipleship of your children? Do you encourage him to that end? Or do you encourage and reinforce unhealthy, self-centered habits for your family? It is my prayer that the mothers of Redeemer Church would joyfully affirm their husbands as the leaders of their homes. It would become a source of strength and encouragement in the task of raising their children. What about children? Children, are you submitting to your mother and father? Do you seek to honor them in your actions and obedience? Do you understand that God has given you the specific parents that you have for a reason? They are a gift to you to protect you from harm, to instruct you in the ways of God, to encourage you towards Christ, and to sacrifice their own desires for your good. It is my prayer that the children of Redeemer Church would obey their parents and do so knowing that to obey mom and dad is to obey the Lord. That they would understand that joyful submission will result in a life of peace and fulfillment. What about couples without children? Many of you here today don't have children. What are you doing now, now, to prepare yourselves for children? Are you making decisions now that will allow you to adequately disciple your kids? You've got to be thinking about this. Are you incurring large amounts of debt? Are you establishing unhealthy habits that will be difficult to shake off when the kids come? Is your relationship with your spouse one of service and mutual love? Or will you be bringing children into a chaotic, self-centered environment? Ask each other these questions. Ask others that you trust will tell you the truth. We must be preparing yourself. And singles. Thankfully, none of this applies to you. (laughs) You're off the hook, right? I don't have a spouse. I don't have any kids. Well, once again, take a look at what you're doing to prepare yourself for marriage and children. Unless God has called you to singleness, a life of singleness, you will be married, and more than likely, you will have children. What are the authority structures that do exist in your life? How is your attitude and submission towards them? Do you struggle to submit? Do you constantly push back against those whom God has placed over you, bosses, professors, elders, your own parents? Do you seek ways to serve and be a blessing to others? Are you developing habits of service and humility for the sake of others? It's very easy for singles to just kind of coast. They know things will change eventually when I get married When I have kids, 
you got to start asking these questions now. The habits you are building into your life now will affect you for the rest of your life, good or bad. I'm telling you, I still can't shake some of mine. It's hard. So no matter what stage of life you are in, the Trinity matters. It matters because God has revealed it to us. It matters because when we don't understand God rightly, we drift into idolatry. It matters because each of us has been given a specific role to play in the life of our family and our church. My hope today is that we would take seriously our calling to train our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. That we would repent of laziness and fear and doubt. This is a difficult task. But it is one we can take up with joy as we remember that we have been given the Holy Spirit filled with the very power of God. We have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, purchased with the blood of Christ, shed for us on the cross, and our heavenly Father has chosen us. God has chosen you to fulfill your role, to fulfill the destiny that he has set for you. And he is equipping each of us for the purpose of family ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you have revealed yourself clearly. I pray today specifically for men in this room. God, I I pray for the husbands and the fathers and the future husbands and fathers. I pray that we would repent, God, of laziness. We would repent of anger. We would repent of worldliness. And God, that we would take seriously this charge to lead our homes well. Father, give us wisdom and grace with our wives. Give us wisdom and grace with our children. I pray that we would be men who are on our knees regularly, in your word regularly, because we are clueless without you, God. We need you, and we need this church, and I I pray, God, for this church that you would Teach us what it means, Lord, to minister to children, to come around families, to equip them, to train them, and that that would be happening. God, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about thinking about this and putting some some new things into place. And God, I pray that we would be able to do that with joy um, in a way that is effective and that reaches into the hearts, takes the gospel message to the hearts of our children, that they would come to know you pray this in Christ's name. Amen.